Well, good morning. It's been three months, um, actually a little over three months, three and a half months since Patty and I have been with you to uh, participate in Sunday morning services here at Fellowship Bible Church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Don Hartog and been at Fellowship now for nearly 17 years. And um, but uh, as of last November, went to Woodstock and our new church plant and um, called Fellowship Bible Church Shenandoah. And Mark and I swap pulpits today at his request. So he is there speaking and um, you have me. So anyway, today I, um, Mark had asked me to address kind of a parenthetical message uh, in light of your study of Romans. Um, as you're going through chapters 9 through 11 that address Israel. And so I'll start off by just simply sharing with you that a number of years ago I was at uh, having coffee with a friend. And um, doesn't go here to FBC, but he is a believer, and he asked me a question. He said, why does Paul switch topics so quickly in Romans and jump from sanctification issues and church, uh, Christian growth issues all of a sudden he shifts gears and starts talking about Israel for three chapters. And um, I, of course, knew about Romans 9 through 11, that it dealt with Israel. But I was a little dumbfounded at his question. I thought, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what caused him to shift gears so quickly and if there's any connection between the first eight chapters and the next three after that. Because in chapter 12, he picks up again on Christian living and and so I, I had to investigate that. It came to understand that with as much talk that the Apostle Paul had in the first part of the epistle that we are no longer under law. And the law, of course, was given to the nation of Israel, the Mosaic law. That it could be concluded that if the law is, the law is nullified for Christian living, then Israel is probably nullified too. Israel of course, failed in obeying their own law, and they certainly rejected the Messiah, and it just, all appearances, one would conclude that God's dealing with Israel was done as well. And so Paul, in a very brilliant way, communicates that's not the case at all. God is not done with the nation of Israel. And so today we want to look into a question, and that is, what is going to happen to Israel in the future? We have been looking at how much they have rejected uh, the Messiah. Now, I've been to Israel ten times, and I've met many fine Christians there that live there that are Israelis, Jewish Israelis. And they um, have churches scattered from one end of the country to the other. So it's not as if there aren't any Jews that are saved, and there's Messianic churches all around the world. But on the other hand, it is also true that the majority of Jews around the world, including Israel, have not put their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. They have not uh, been born again. So what's in store for the nation of Israel, including all the Jewish people? And today we're going to take a bird's eye view. We're going to be flying over that subject at about 30,000 feet, taking a look down and getting just kind of a bird's eye view because there is no way in one sermon we would be able to even mention, let alone expound on all the events that are going to be happening in the future. So please keep in mind that this is just the basics and the overview. 
I'm going to be reading a number of scriptures this morning. We won't have time to look them up, but I'll be reading them. But for those of you that are taking notes, I'll make sure to make reference to, uh, to the reference so that you can write that down and look at them a little bit more detail later. Before I have prayer, I want to read a verse of scripture to you that um, is actually found in the book of Titus. And I want you to listen very carefully because it pertains to the subject matter today as it relates to Israel, her future, and as it relates to her rejection, and, uh, but the promises about the future. In Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, listen carefully, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God cannot lie. It's a very important truth to remember today as it relates to the nation of Israel and her future as well as her past. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity. It's ours to meet together this morning and uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, uh, the truths concerning our past and our present, but also our future. Thank you for the hope that your word gives us as it teaches us about your magnificent control and sovereignty over all the events of life. And you have kindly shared with us details that give us hope and give us understanding and to be able to even discern and interpret the events of our present day that we not lose hope and that we not be surprised but that we persevere on until your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns. So I pray that your Holy Spirit will impress that even more deeply in our hearts through our time together this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our world has been turned upside down, hasn't it, this last year? It was a year ago now that the subject of a virus coming out of Asia, out of China. We weren't sure of all the details, but it was making its way, and then there was the first known case that hit our shores, and it went on from there. Many of us have been affected by it, not only physically. I had it myself. I was slammed uh, while I was in Texas, and um, a hotel graciously took Patty and I in where I laid in bed for well over a week, and very weak. Um, it was, it was a, uh, a not fun experience. And many of you have had it. People have it from one degree to another. My in-laws are in their 90s, and they got it the same time I did, but they were over it in three days, and I'm thinking, how does that work? <laughs> that when I'm in my sixth week, and I'm still walking kind of queasily in through my living room here in Virginia, but anyway, we know it's affected us, but not only physically, it's affected us as it relates to the matter of our jobs, uh, people's income, um, the way we do things. Of course, here at church, I see masks. 
I see a lot less people here on a Sunday morning than what we are used to. There's all kinds of impact that that has had. It's turned our world upside down. As of 2.45 p.m. yesterday, just yesterday alone, there was 479 deaths from COVID at 2.45 p.m. 335,000 people, at least, have died in our own country from COVID. Worldwide, 109 million people have contracted the disease, and about 2.5 million have, have, have died. It's been a remarkable and incredible um, event in world history. But I want to share with you something. This world hasn't seen anything yet. This is a cakewalk compared to what the world is yet to experience. It's one of the most neglected parts of Scripture, I think, that evangelical Christians have just put aside as if it doesn't pertain to them. It's a subject matter about seven years that is often referred to as the tribulation. It's also known as the 70th week of Daniel because it's a precise prophecy from the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Bible tells us how specific it is. The Bible gave us prophecies about Christ's first coming and his second coming is just as precise. We're told that this future event of seven years actually consists of two periods of 1,260 days each. It's also called a period of 42 months, and it's also called a period of time, times, and a half a time. Seven years divided in half at three and a half years each, pertaining to events that the world is going to experience. The first three and a half are really, really bad. The first three and a half years of this seven-year period in the future is extremely bad. And the second three and a half years are even worse. This is not a period of time in which the world is going to experience the peace and safety that they have called for. This is a time that the world is going to experience something that is totally the opposite. But today we want to look at Israel and her relationship to this period of time because this period of time is pretty much centered around her. She's the focal point. In fact, I would even say today that she is the reason for it. You've been studying how mankind is under the wrath of God, that God's wrath is poured out upon all ungodliness, and that even includes Christians who are walking in ungodliness, that they experience the consequences of sin, which is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is that he allows us to experience sin's consequences, its results. But the, <coughs> excuse me, but the wrath in the future, this seven-year period of time, is a wrath that I'm going to call the heightened wrath. Because that period of time is also called in the Bible the wrath of God being poured out on the earth, and especially as it pertains to the nation of Israel. In the book of Jeremiah, it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, of course, his name was changed to Israel. In fact, Jeremiah says in chapter 30, he says, verse 7, Alas, for the day is great, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be delivered out of it. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. 
It's going to be a great, difficult time for the nation, but also for the whole world. So today we want to look at Israel, her future, but before we do, we need to look at her past, because it's in her past that God made promises. And so I'd like to first of all look at the promise that was given, then the promise that is still operative and will be operative in the immediate future, and then the promise that is still to come. The promise that was given. Many of you have read in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, that God made a promise to Abraham. He chose Abraham to make a nation from him. And from this nation, God was going to channel his message of redemption to the whole world. And so he promised Abraham three things. He promised him, first of all, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed. Even though you're older, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And then more children, and more children, and more children, until it comes to the point like the stars of the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. So he promises them land, and he promises them people, and then he promises to bless him. But he also says that through you and your seed, the whole world will be blessed. And ultimately, we know that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but it's also fulfilled in the fact that eventually Israel does become the channel to present the person and work of Jesus Christ to the world. God confirmed that covenant. If you read just a few chapters later, God went through a custom that was a contractual agreement during that era in which two parties would come to an agreement on a particular is issue, maybe a business issue, and they would take these animals and they would cut them in two and lay them in two columns, two rows, and those two that were making this contractual agreement would walk in between those two rows of sacrificed animals to confirm their covenant till death do them part. And so God arranged this with Abraham. And Abraham got the animals, cut them up, put them in two rows, and then God did something very, very unique. Instead of walking through and between those rows with Abraham to make this covenant, what he had just promised him, God put Abraham to sleep, and God walked through it himself. Because what God was saying in doing that is that this promise is based upon me and me alone. This is not a conditional conf, uh, conf, uh, covenant. This is not a contract in which you have to do your part and I'll do my part. God was saying, this one's based on me alone. I'm going to fulfill this. And my word, my word, all of it's dependent upon that. Is the promise still continuing? That unconditional promise that God was going to make a nation and use that nation to bring the light of redemption to the world, that promise still exists. Let me read to you from the book of Jeremiah again. As he's prophesying about a time in which Israel, Judah particularly, is going to be taken captive and brought to Babylonia, for 70 years of captivity, a time in which every Jew, a time in which the whole world would say God's done with them. It's over. He's annihilated the nation through Nebuchadnezzar. The northern tribes have already been basically destroyed by Assyria. 
And now the southern tribes are being taken captive. God's done with us. And Jeremiah says this. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the ordinances of the moon, the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. God is saying, if you ever wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning and you don't see any kind of sunlight or evidence of sunlight, if you go at night and you look up into a clear sky and the clouds are gone and you don't see a single star and you haven't seen the moon for months, if you go to the Outer Banks and the ocean is as still as a piece of glass and stays that way, then you'll know that I forsook Israel. Then you'll know, if the sun doesn't shine, if the moon and the stars aren't ever out, and if the sea is still as glass, then you might start wondering if I have forsaken my covenant. But if you wake up in the morning and there's light outside, you look at the sky at night and you can see stars and some phase of the moon, if you head to vacation, and you're on the beach and you see that waves are still coming in and hurricanes develop and storms happen on the sea, then you're going to know this. My covenant still remains with Israel. His promise is unconditional. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, in the context of the section you're studying here at FBC, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? And then he says, certainly not. Very emphatic statement. Paul is assuring these Gentile believers that God's program and his plan with Israel remains because his promise back to Abraham was unconditional and it will be fulfilled. But how will it be fulfilled? Well, that brings us into the next section here because not only is his promise continuing now, but it's going to continue into the immediate future, but even during the time of what is called Jacob's trouble. Now, this bird's-eye view of this seven-year period of time, there are primarily three different types of judgments, three different segments of judgments. The first is called the seals, not a seal that you find over at uh, SeaWorld, but a seal that was something to close a document, and that seal had to be broken before that document could be opened. Some of these judgments are called the seals. Another set of judgments are called the trumpets. Trumpets are used throughout the Old Testament to announce things or call to war or various different purposes of the trumpets. And the last one is called the bowls, because God is going to pour out his wrath from the bowls. The seals and the trumpets are bad, but the bowls, I would have to say, are even worse. What do they consist of? Well, let's talk just a few things about the seals. There's excessive murder amongst people. 
There's an inflation that the world has never yet experienced in which months of wages will be necessary to buy one loaf of bread. Starvation will be rampant. The wild beasts of the earth will attack people at a much, much greater rate than they do now. Bears will not flee as you walk the Appalachian Trail. They'll attack and they'll kill. The beasts of the earth are going to be after man, and then there's going to be cosmic and cataclysmic events that are going to scare people as they look at the heavens and see phenomenon that they've never seen before that bring about great fear. In this context, in Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17, let me read, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, they hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lord. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? <clears throat> Days that the world has yet to see. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that back in the days of Moses, if you've read your Old Testament, that when God delivered Moses and the people of Israel, the Israelites, out of Egypt, he used plagues in order to break Egypt down to her knees, to break Pharaoh's hard heart so that the people could go. We don't have time to ask you, but I'll mention some of the plagues that you remember, I'm sure. Moses turns the water to blood. Actually, God does, but through him. So now the Nile River, which was total life-giving to the Egyptians, now is blood. Frogs come out of nowhere and crawl in their beds and everywhere which way, and hailstorms come and destroy and kill, and livestock lies dead, and locusts come up and restore all, or uh, eat up all the crops and just come in waves upon waves. Darkness covers the world, and the list goes on and on. And finally, Pharaoh lets Moses go. They leave and they go and they eventually find themselves at the Red Sea and Pharaoh changes his mind. An earlier Pharaoh had thrown all of the children, infants of Israel into the water to drown. Moses was saved by his mother and even Pharaoh's daughter. And it was time for repay. Because God said, you threw my children and drowned them in the sea. I'm going to take you and drown you in the sea. And Israel flees and they come to the Red Sea and now the Egyptians are changing their mind and they're on the attack and Israel is trapped. Israel is trapped with an enemy in hot pursuit and a sea that they cannot cross. We'll talk a little bit more about that event in a few minutes. But just keep in mind, do you believe that the plagues were literal? Do you think they really happened? I do. There's nothing in the text that tells us that they're figurative of something else. But as you read about the 
seven-year period in Revelation chapters 4 through 19, those plagues are replicated. Those events take place again. Water turning to blood. Locusts coming out of the abyss like smoke. The Bible tells us that when that next wave of judgments come, they're called the trumpets. Vegetation is burned up. A third of the sea is turned to blood. A third of the sea creatures die. The fresh water is polluted as wormwood. Darkness covers the world for a period of time. Locusts come out of the abyss like smoke. And then there's two men that come on the scene called the two witnesses. And they replicate the miracles of Elijah and Moses. They are powerful people. And they're proclaiming Jesus to the world, but particularly to the Jewish people as they walk the streets of Jerusalem. But they also exercise judgments. In fact, it's likely that they are the ones that actually cause the trumpet judgments to take place. But they do more. They call for a drought. Just like Elijah did with Ahab in Israel, where the drought became so severe for three and a half years that cannibalism resulted because people were so hungry. Elijah called that drought on an apostate, an apostate people. Moses turned the water to blood in the first plague. And these two witnesses do these miraculous plagues upon Israel again and upon the world as a whole. They're wreaking havoc, but yet at the same time they're proclaiming Jesus and many people come to faith in Christ through their witness. But predominantly the world's people and Israel himself hates these people because of all the havoc. Well, why don't they just kill them? Well, the Bible says everybody that tried to kill them, fire would come out of their mouth and kill them. If you attempted to kill them, they would kill you and fire coming out of the mouth. Both Elijah and Moses experienced fire coming out of heaven destroying their enemies. And now they're executing that fire out of their own mouths. Nobody's able to, to get close to them. And they keep proclaiming Jesus, but also exercising these judgments on the world, these miraculous plagues. But this time it's not just located in Egypt. It's universal. Now the world is experiencing what Egypt was just a foretaste of back in the days of Moses. Do you know the story? A man comes on the scene who is miraculously and supernaturally empowered, and he kills these three witnesses. But all in the sovereign hand of God, and they lay on the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. The Bible says the whole world sees them. We understand that now through television. And after three and a half days, because they did this ministry for the first three and a half years of this seven-year period, a voice comes out of heaven and says to these men lying in the streets dead and their bodies are already decomposing. And that voice comes out of heaven and says, Come up here! And those men begin to breathe. And they rise up and they then get their feet, stand up. And the Bible says they ascend to heaven and the whole world sees it and fears. That's the trumpet judgments. Then come the bowls, sores of extreme pain on the population. Waters turn to blood again for another time. The sun executes a heat that is so scorching 
that people feel like they're on fire. There's extreme pain to the degree that they gnaw at their tongues, the Bible says. Hail comes down in massive amounts. Earthquakes, and Jesus taught us that there are wars and great amounts of killing and billions of people are killed during this time, let alone this man who killed the two witnesses is on the rampage and he tries to find every believer in Jesus that he can to kill them and he kills them by beheading because not only does he want to kill them, he wants to cause great fear and threat to anybody who believes in Jesus. The good thing is that during that period of time, there's also 144,000 Jews that came to know Jesus primarily through the ministry of the two witnesses who get sent out and preach Jesus around the world. So you have these simultaneously events that are taking place around our world. Friends, before we go any farther, these are traumatic things that COVID's a cakewalk compared to that. And the Bible's very clear that this is going to happen, and it's called the wrath of God to come. One way we're under the wrath of God, and if there's disobedience, rejecting Jesus Christ, walking in sin, but the heightened wrath of God is yet to come. And I want to share with you an encouraging word. The Apostle Paul wrote another book called the book of First Thessalonians. And in chapter 1 and chapter 5, he reminds these Christians that they will be delivered from the wrath to come. And in between those two statements, he describes in detail an event that we often call the rapture. I like to call it the taking, in which the dead in Christ will rise first and receive resurrected bodies and ascend to heaven. They may even ascend in such a way that the world witnesses them just like they will the two witnesses. Then the Bible says that we who are alive will be caught up together with them and will meet the Lord in the clouds because he will descend out of the third heaven, come into our atmosphere, but stay veiled behind the clouds. We will go through the clouds and see him. At 5.30 this afternoon, my wife and I will be in an airplane, Lord willing, and it's going to take off, and if these clouds continue, as they probably will, we're going to be taking off from Baltimore, and we're going to be ascending higher and higher and higher, and then we're going to go through clouds, and we're not going to be able to see anything out of the window except white fog, and then all of a sudden, boom, we're going to see clear sky. Can't wait for the day to bust through clouds, and there he is. You can clap. You can clap on that. And there he is, along with all believers who have died in Christ, who we miss, and those who are alive at the present time, when that event happens, we all get brand new bodies in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says. Our bodies will be changed. Paul says you're going to be saved from the wrath to come. That doesn't mean that right now things are always easy. 
We experience illnesses and death. We experience trauma. We experience job losses. We experience trials of all different sorts. But nothing compared to what lies ahead. And Paul assures us, as believers, we will be saved from the wrath to come. Jesus assured us of the same thing in Matthew 24. The promise that was given, the promise that still is, but also the promise that is still to come at Jesus' return. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. This is not how to become born again. That verse is not to be used to tell people how they can come to make sure that they have eternal life. This is a verse that has application now to the Christian, but it's a verse that primarily refers to Israel. At the end of the seven years, she will finally be broken, and she will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they will confess him that he is Lord. And even though many Jews have been killed by this time, at the end of those seven years, every living Jew will be a Christian. Every living Jew will now have placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ, and they're calling upon him to deliver because here's what's happening. This man of sin, this beast he's called of the sea, by the end of those seven years, he has pretty much conquered the world and gathered the world's armies under his control. And they gather in the Valley of Jezreel, or often called the Valley of Armageddon. And they make their way down to Jerusalem because their goal is to annihilate every Christian, and especially every Jewish Christian, because Satan himself, Jesus said, is the ruler of this world, and we are his obstacle right now. And Satan wants to rid the world of his obstacles and take control of the world. He recognizes that God is the God of heaven. And he says, basically, you can have the heavens, but I have the earth. And the Jewish people are in Jerusalem now, and the armies are coming down, and guess what? They're trapped. They're trapped. And the book of Zechariah tells us that Jesus Christ and his army, which we will be a part of, come down through the clouds into the atmosphere. On a white horse, Jesus lands on the top of the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. And you know what the Bible says? The Mount of Olives splits in two so that the Jewish believers have a way of escape the Red Sea is replicated all over again. But this time, it's not a pillar of cloud that holds back the armies of Egypt, and now the armies of the beast. It's Jesus Christ himself. It says he comes and be like the wine press. In other words, there's going to be so much blood splattering, even on the, even on the robes of Jesus. As he annihilates these armies and the blood will be running so high up to the horse's shoulders because of the massive amount of humanity that will be executed by the king of kings and we will not have one fatality. And Israel will be saved. The Bible says in Romans 11, again your passage, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. 
Zechariah says at this event, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one gives for a firstborn. What does that say? When the Jews see him coming out and they've called upon him for deliverance, but they see him coming out of the heavens, not only will they escape and be saved and delivered from the beast and from annihilation, but they're going to cry. He's the one we put on the cross. We pierced him. And now he's delivering us. He's delivering because of the spirit of grace. He's delivering because of his covenant. Back to Abraham. He's delivering because of his love. Satan says, I got this world, you can have the heavens, God. God says, no way. I'm coming back to take the earth to myself and establish a kingdom on this earth. The Bible says in the very first verses of the book of Genesis that the earth was covered with water and darkness before he brought light and plant life and so forth. It was covered with water and darkness. You can't live in water and darkness. There was chaos. The Bible says on the new earth that he'll eventually create after his kingdom here on this earth. It says two things in the last two chapters of the Bible. There will no longer be any darkness. No longer be any night because the illumination of Jesus Christ will light up that world forever. And then he says, and there will be no more sea. Evil will be conquered. Jesus said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. By the way, the world will hallow his name in the coming kingdom according to the book of Ezekiel in several passages. That's what Jesus said. Pray that my name will be hallowed because that means the kingdom has come. And then he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for that event when he comes down and takes the world back to himself. Because Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And throughout the book of Revelation, Satan keeps claiming the world for himself, but relinquishing the heavens to God, and God says, no way. They're both mine, and I'm coming back to redeem what's mine. I'm coming back to redeem the people that I created. I'm coming back to the people who chose to eat of the tree. I'm coming back to the people who have rejected me for centuries. And I'm coming back to redeem them because they now believe. Here's the point, folks. God does not lie. And that goes true for every promise that he's made. God does not lie. Some of you Understand that when you're planning a vacation for the future, you get brochures, you go online, you look at where you're going to stay, you look at the things you're going to see, and you build excitement. 
so that when the event actually happens, you're going to be able to enjoy it, but it's, it's almost as fun looking forward to it as it is the event itself. But God's been gracious that in this book, a fourth of it's devoted to what's going to happen in the future. A fourth of it should not be neglected. Our family has been experiencing what many of you experience, tragedy in your family. You have sicknesses, and we're not the only ones at FBC by any means. There's some very, very difficult things that people are facing. And in light of that, this is what the Apostle Paul said about being saved from that wrath to come. He says, in life you're going to sorrow. But by knowing these truths, you won't have to sorrow without hope because it's only very, very temporary. When you're separated from people that you love, it's very temporary because when you bust through those clouds, you'll see him first and then you'll see them, never to be separated again. He doesn't lie. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, Paul says, he will deny us. But deny us what? Deny us to reign with him. But even if we are faithless, Paul says, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He never lies. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, you're stuck because he will never let you go even if you try to pry his hands off of you. You are his forever because he said, he who believes in me will never thirst again. And he does not lie. The promise to Abraham will be fulfilled going to be some rough times before that. But he's faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we could have together. And even though there are dark elements of the future, we know that for us as believers, the future is very bright and hopeful. A hope that is sure. Today we give you our thanks that your promises are sure and that you never lie. In Jesus' name, amen.